This is the WTF Bach Podcast. Right that work those fingers. This is the podcast about all things Johann Sebastian Bach. Brought to you by Evan Schinners. WTF Bach. Brought to you by Evan Schinners. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. And now, here's WTF Bach. Hello, this is WTF Bach. You may call me Evan Shinners if you want to use my legal name. The goal of this podcast is to get you to hear Bach the way I hear Bach, to lead your ears, to steer your mind to certain features of an otherwise very complicated music. And this breaking down, this dissecting it, will help you understand little by little what this is all about. This man with whom many great minds have been obsessed for many years. But first... What is this? This is WTF Bach. The bowing and the scraping of the anonymous fiddlers had shaken the air in the great hall, had set the glass of the windows looking onto it vibrating, and thus in turn had shaken the air in Lord Edward's apartment on the further side. The shaking air rattled Lord Edward's membrane timpani. The interlocked malleus, incus, and stirrup bones were set in motion so as to agitate the membrane of the oval window and raise an infinitesimal storm in the fluid of the labyrinth. The hairy endings of the auditory nerve shuddered like weeds in a rough sea. A vast number of obscure miracles were performed in the brain, and Lord Edwards ecstatically whispered, Bach. So, welcome to the third episode discussing the Art of Fugue. That quote is a quote from Aldous Huxley's novel Point Counterpoint, written in 1928, and I quote from it because it is point-counterpoint, and of course it references the master of counterpoint, Mr. J.S. This episode will hit upon the second and third fugues from the Art of Fugue. Now, I'm mentioning here, this podcast so far is a cumulative podcast, meaning we're building upon the knowledge of past episodes, but I'm trying to let everyone jump in at every single episode, but if you do find yourself lost, go ahead and listen from episode one. In the bonus episode, I was asked the question about that instrument, who was playing it, what was the instrument. Firstly, unless I say otherwise, unless I draw special attention to a performer, this will always be me playing and demonstrating. But that instrument was a Bluetooth MIDI keyboard sitting atop my piano. I started this project on the Art of Fugue a year ago because I wanted to do something completely obsessive. Well, the Art of Fugue was written and published in open score, meaning each voice has its own staff. So when you think about piano music, piano music is written on two staves, one for each hand. But pretty much every other type of music, violin music, flute music, kazoo music, uses only one staff. Organ music uses three, one for each hand and one for both feet on the pedals. Harp music, two staves, but for the most part, everything is usually on one staff. So just from the look of it, when you see the Art of Fugue, you see four staves and you think four instruments, perhaps. And this has been some of the major cause of confusion about the purpose of the Art of Fugue. How this is still a work for two hands and why it was published in open score will have to be the subject of a later episode in which we talk about, you know, sort of exposing a lot of the myths, the rumors of the Art of Fugue. But I just wanted to explain why I was recording this music on an electronic instrument, because it would appear that Bach, writing an open score, perhaps 
aims to show only visually the independence of each line. Not that a four-voice fugue on any number of staves has less independence within each voice, but I think this is a really visual thing to say, hey, one voice, one line. This is how a fugue is built. So when I started recording this project, I started recording one line at a time because I wanted to hear how it was built. And since then, I've recorded every single voice separately with this little wireless keyboard punching in note by note. And then I could hear the entire thing like we did in the bonus episode by removing certain voices, by panning certain voices to one speaker and just isolating other voices. It's as if I have a great house and I can look at the house with say the floor is removed so I could just look at the walls or I could remove the walls. Enough chatter, let's get back to this episode. Here is the second contrapuntus from the Art of Fugue played on the clavichord. I think I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking... Those fingers are amazing. Work those fingers. No, actually, you're probably thinking WTF was that instrument. Well, that is a clavichord. Now, before I explain too much about what a clavichord is, because I think I probably need an entire episode dedicated to the clavichord, let me just move that microphone, that contact microphone on my clavichord, just two inches. 
from where it was. Okay, so you could already see how much quieter that is. That's because this clavichord is the most intensely intimate personal instrument that has ever existed. At least one Bach biographer has claimed that the clavichord was Bach's favorite instrument. Now, whether or not that is true, who knows? But it's a very difficult thing to mic, to put a microphone to. Because, for example, why don't I put this microphone that I'm speaking into right next to the action, right next to the strings of the clavichord and see what happens. Now look, I think we can all agree that that is a better sound quality, but the problem with that is that that's not really how the clavichord sounds when you're playing it. That microphone is much closer to the action than your ears are, and when you really lift your head two feet away from the action of the clavichord, it sounds completely different. There is no great way to approximate this sound, and every single clavichord recording I've ever heard is mic'd very differently. It's such a subtle thing. It's such a subtle art. I would think that the best way for you to approximate the sound of what this clavichord is is to play that first recording that I played on your phone at half volume and place your phone on a table or something like that. You could check to see if this volume is right if just you speaking at your normal conversational voice will drown out the sound because that is truly how soft it is. If you're at a clavichord concert and someone starts speaking, you will no longer hear the clavichord. It's so small, but it's really truly wonderful within this small world. It's sort of like the most diverse musical world that I've ever experienced. The reason that this was such a useful thing for instruments then and today is that because it's so delicate, it really develops your touch, your subtle touch. And playing the clavichord for a while and then going back to the harpsichord or going back to the piano, you suddenly have an appreciation for the nuance of the clavichord. But also, just think about from a practical standpoint, you're Bach, okay? You've got a lot of children. Um, your family are musicians, right? So you can't have, you know, 12 children playing the harpsichord, you know? So what you do is you take you take multiple clavichords and you could put one son in one corner of one room with his clavichord and another son in the same room with another clavichord, and they both can practice and not hear the other person practicing, but they could hear themselves, and that is truly wonderful. There's also an instrument called the pedal clavichord, and this is a clavichord like the one that I played, played with the hands, and a pedal mechanism played with your feet. Now, this is the practice instrument for organists, because think about this. Organs, they had to be pumped by, not by hand, but by feet. There would be two often two guys in the back of the organ sort of stepping on this big air bladder in order to get the organ to sound. Now that, I want to read that guy's biography. I want to read the biography of the guy who pumped the air for Bach's organ. That would just be truly incredible. But obviously he didn't write a biography. Um, okay, yeah, so the thing is you can't go into the church. You can't, it's First of all, the church is closed. It's cold. You got to have these two guys if you want to try the organ. So no, you stay at home. You play your pedal clavichord. Now, I want to draw your attention to one aspect of that first recording that I didn't even notice until I heard it playing back. Let me isolate this passage here. Do you hear that? That's a that's a very subtle thing to hear. It's not the playing, it's in the 
atmosphere. It's in the noise in the background. Try listening to what happens in the background noise just one more time. It's like suddenly the room gets a lot quieter. Well, that's because my refrigerator turned off at that moment and the microphone picked that up. That means that the noise that a refrigerator makes while it's humming is so loud in relativity to the clavichord that when it turns off, it will change the entire atmosphere of a clavichord recording. I think that's just fantastic. Here's the third fugue on the piano. some weird popping noises from the microphones. Hopefully that won't happen again. Yeah, this is just me in my room recording on my piano, but at the end of all of this talk about the Art of Fugue, maybe when this podcast is over, I will put out a professional-grade recording of the Art of Fugue so that you could sort of hear what my current thoughts on it are. Okay, so you've just heard the second and third contrapuntuses from the Art of Fugue. Now, let's just think about this from the bird's eye view. You're at a concert, you're listening, someone is going to play the Art of Fugue. The first fugue sort of ends. And the second one begins exactly the same way as the first one, but just now an octave lower. And then the third one starts. And you notice that the endings are very similar. You have in the second one, you have... Um, and in the third one, the ending, you have... 
And then we realize, oh, Bach is telling us something. And what is he telling us? Well, he's telling us about the permutability. Let's call it the permutability of this subject. He tells us in the first one, it will be played straight. Or it can be played straight, rather. In the second one, the subject can also be played swung, as it were. the third one, it can be played upside down. How about this? You'll notice that this is upside down from the original one. And as this goes on, as this madness goes on, Bach will do this with 14 fugues, and he will accomplish every single thing that can be accomplished by changing just this one cell of music. And the way in which he will do this is truly staggering, is truly one of the greatest accomplishments in all of music. And all the fugues will get a little more complicated as they go on. And then when you have this 14th fugue, which is his name, because that musical alphabet I talk about, A is 1, B is 2, C is 3... D is 4, etc. B plus A plus C plus H equals 14. So this is Bach's fugue. This is the 14th fugue, and he's going to do a quadruple fugue, a fugue in four subjects, and the third subject is his own name. And then it's like he's right about to accomplish it, and just, you know, the whole world is going to crumble under the weight of his genius. And they lost it. They lost the last page, and we don't get it. And we don't see how the master was going to combine these four subjects. So now you have these people for centuries after spouting these myths. He died on his bed. He died right as he was composing it. You have people trying to finish it for him. You have people reading all sorts of crazy matrices into the ideas saying, well, you know, if you obviously if you count the amount of notes and you divide it by the numbers of words in John's gospel, I mean, people have just gone absolute bonkers trying to figure out how this last fugue was going to be completed. All things VIP Bach, which is J.S. Bach, brought to you by WTF Bach. I remember being 16 years old and getting my first copy of The Art of Fugue, and oh, I just looked at it, and you, you look at the one page, and there's the first fugue, okay, and then there's the second fugue with the same subject, only an octave lower. Oh, and then there's the third fugue upside down, and then there's the fourth fugue, again upside down. You look at the fifth fugue, and you go, okay, something is happening, and as it goes on, you, you don't really recognize the melody quite as instantaneously as you do as the fugues go on, but then you turn to that last page, and you just see that oh, it just stops. It just breaks off. I look at that, and I go, whoa. That's where he died. But is it? Is that where the master died? Do we get this romantic image of him on the deathbed, signing his name and unable to complete his dying thought, his swan song? Is it true? Well, we'll find out eventually. But first, let's examine the second and third fugues. This is the bass, entering with the theme, sort of in your left speaker. Here's the tenor in your right speaker. We're going from the bottom up this time, unlike the first fugue. Here's the alto, still in your right speaker. So I've got middle voices in the right speaker, outer voices in the left speaker, and here's the soprano, the top voice. Notice the dotted ba-dum, ba-dum, very different from the first fugue. There, that's the end of the exposition, and now he'll modulate and watch where he goes. Oof. E major, very far away from our home. Now, call and response. And the alto has the theme now. And the soprano steps on his toes. Okay, let's hear that. Let's hear that isolated. The alto there, rather than doing this, 
steps up into it like this. And then the other voices will imitate that sort of stepping up. And before the alto can finish all that it has to say, which is this. The soprano will interrupt him. That was the imitation. And there's the soprano interrupting the alto with its own subject. Here comes the bass. There's a short episode, no themes here. Until the tenor here. That's still in your right speaker. And now we're going to climb into the most soaringly beautiful entrance in the soprano. And a second later, the alto comes in here. Heartbreakingly sad, he changes the mood so quickly, and the bass will interrupt. Do you see we're in the middle of the theme now in the bass? We have to hear that one again. Okay, here's the step up into the soprano. Body the theme, and then we'll hear the alto, very sad, and here's the bass, you see how he entered early, that's called a premature entrance, so little by little, Bach is just changing things here and there, stepping on each other's toes, a little early in an entrance, stepping up into the theme. There's an entrance in the bass. And we're sort of closing down, you can feel. Ooh, did you hear this? This in the tenor is a sneaky entrance. Let's hear that one again. Because now what Bach has done is he's taken the entrance, but instead of playing it on the beat, he sort of staggers the tenor just a little bit. So instead of playing do, do, dum, he goes dum, dum, dum. Here it is. Boom, ding, dum, boom, 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 You see, it's changed. Slowly he's changing things. Slowly this shape, this original Art of Fugue melody is being blown and twisted out of proportions. There's that bass pedal tone. And now final entrance in the soprano. Okay, so now you've heard this second fugue from the Art of Fugue on both the clavichord and this maybe, I don't know, English horn sort of sound that I've created. And now we're going to go on to the third fugue from the Art of Fugue, a very different sounding electronic version of this third fugue. But when I played it on the piano earlier in this episode, you may have noticed that it was upside down. So there's a way in which to turn things upside down in music, just like you're turning 
any other shape upside down, you have to choose its point of access, you have to choose which way it's going to rotate. Let's take the art of fugue theme. And let's take its first note. So as we know, so if I turn it upside down from this first note here, instead of going up this interval, I will have to go down that interval, right? So playing this fugue upside down using this note as its access point sounds like this. Right, but if I take the second note, for example, and I use that as the access point, now it sounds like this. So it's the same melody. The problem is that they're in different keys. The second one I played is very much in D minor, which is our key of the Art of Fugue. But the first one that I played is in G minor, which is not the key of the Art of Fugue. So Bach will use this first access point, that D, as the point of rotation. But in order to keep it in D minor, he has to just alter the shape slightly. See if you can hear the difference. That is exactly upside down, but sort of the shift that Bach makes is this. That's very interesting because that's sort of like initially we go up by this fifth one, two, three, four, five. And so instead of going down by five, he goes down by four, one, two, three, four. Well, in a strict sense, a fourth is the inversion of a fifth, because we're not creating a mirror, like going up this interval and then going down that interval, Bach is creating the inversion. So let me try and explain this. So the inversion of this interval here is found by simply putting this bottom note on the top of this note. So instead of this, we have, okay, so if we count this first interval, that's a fifth, one, two, three, four, five, and now counting this interval, one, two, three, four. So that is why the true inversion of a fifth is a fourth. And you can do this with any interval. You can also remember this formula, the inversions will add up to nine, the inversion of a fifth is a fourth, because five plus four equals nine, just like the inversion of a sixth will be a third, the inversion of a second will be a seventh, etc. So you can also find out the formula by taking say two notes and putting the bottom note on the top. So now instead of this, we have, and you can count one, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, six, six and three equals nine. So Bach in this first fugue that is inverted, doesn't want to create a mirror, not yet, he doesn't want to create a mirror. So that's why we get this true strict inversion of a fourth. We had in our third fugue, our first counter subject. I don't really want to call anything else so far that we've encountered in the first two fugues a counter subject. We have material that recurs in episodes and things like this. But the counter subject by definition is something that occurs while the theme is being stated that we see again and again. So in this third fugue, here is our counter subject. It's very interesting. It's a chromatic one. So that one's sort of easy to remember by this just slow fall and then the rise. So if I were to play it with the subject, it would sound like this. Okay, so then when the next voice enters, which is the soprano, we'll hear the counter subject now in the alto. Okay, now here it is with the soprano playing the theme.
then when the bass enters, the soprano will have the counter subject. So here is the counter subject in the soprano. And now here it is with the bass. And then every time, I believe every time, we hear a fugue subject enter, we will have this. So for example, in bar 43, we have the soprano with the theme and the alto with the counter subject. Okay, let's hear finally this third fugue, now played in a very different style from the styles in this episode. We've had clavichord, a piano, a sort of English horn sounding electronic thing, and now, I don't know, help me define this one.
So, to recap, we had our second fugue that had that ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum character of it. So all using the same themes from the first fugue to the second fugue, they had two completely different feels. He also started playing with sort of the entrances, not always on the beat, but coming off the beat. And he started playing with the shape of that initial melodic leap. And in the third fugue, we had our subject inverted. And we had our first counter subject, and it was chromatic. And we'll see to which extent this goes. We'll see where Bach will take this truly malleable piece of music. So thanks for listening. Thanks so much for listening. We're a brand new podcast and, and we, we want to hear, hear from, from you. you. Got suggestions? Want Evan to analyze a specific piece of Bach? Have any other questions for Evan about music or anything, anything at, all? at all? Do you want to partner with the WTF Bach podcast? Write to us. B-A-C-H at WTFBach.com. Help keep this podcast alive. Support, Support us. us. Send us a donation on Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at WTF Bach. Evan Shinners is the founder of New Call Incorporated, a 501c3 nonprofit which performs classical music in atypical venues. Find a playlist of the music referenced in this episode. Check the episode descriptions. And we would be remiss if we didn't thank you for listening to the WTF Rock Podcast.